Good morning, church. So great to see each of you here. We're continuing in our series of messages uh, that go along with this material we're working through, experiencing God. And I want to encourage you, if you have begun to do this, to stick with it. Uh, I know it's, it requires some effort to set aside some time five days a week to, to do the work and to, to set aside 20 to 30 minutes a day to, to work through it. But uh, I hope you're realizing, those of you who've started, uh, that this uh, really pays dividends, that intentionally setting aside time and intentionally focusing on seeking God, um, we find that when we do that, God is waiting eagerly. To, uh, to receive us. And uh, so I want to encourage you, keep, keep doing it. Uh, maintain the, the pattern of work. Uh, I'm sure that uh, there will be things that try to rise up to derail your effort to stay in this. And let me encourage you to be prepared for that and stick with it. Um, so what I'm doing on Sundays is I'm trying to reinforce some of the things we're reading about and going through throughout the week with this Experiencing God discipleship material. Um, and today uh, we're talking uh, about uh, this week, uh, the memory verse was from Matthew 22, uh, 37 and 38. I'm going to take a little bit broader I'm going to take a few verses before and a couple of verses after. But uh, as I've been looking at this passage, one of the things that frightens me most about the world we live in today is the way in which technology has made it hard for us to have genuine relationships. I see children growing up today with a phone in their hands, and I try to greet them or talk to them, and they can't look me in the eye. And I wonder what's going to happen when you get to be 20 or 30 and you still haven't learned how to actually interact in presence with another person because we have uh, used this technology which supposedly connects us, but it really becomes a barrier. It becomes a filter. We, we build relationships mediated through this little gadget that sits in our pockets, and uh, we try to build relationships that are uh, lived out not in shared life but in texts, one text at a time. I worry about this. We hide behind that little screen and let it put up a buffer between us and everybody else. You know, that's why people love to text, because it doesn't require any commitment or presence. Don't call me, text me, because if I want to ignore you, I want to ignore you. I want to interact with you when it's convenient to me. I want to say something back to you when I want to say it, when I need something from you. And if not, I want to be happy to just ignore you and go about my day. Well, when are we going to learn to have relationships with each other? Does the Bible have anything to say about relationships? Is there a better way? I think so. Let's see what Jesus had to say about the Bible and what it has to say about relationships. So you'll notice that the title of the unit uh, for the week has been God Pursues a Love Relationship. And uh, they say that because they've been trying to focus this week on helping us to understand that God uh, wants more than anything a, a relationship with each one of us. But I, I, would, I would slightly tweak that and say that God pursues love relationships, plural, 
And as we work through the passage, I think it'll become evident why, why I did that. Let's uh, begin with, uh, with the passage in verse uh, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? It might be helpful to understand a little bit about the context here. You've probably heard the word Pharisee used uh, in a derogatory way, you know, to describe kind of a holier-than-thou religious hypocrite. Uh, you're such a Pharisee. You may have heard people say that. Um, it, it might be good to understand a little bit about these groups in first century Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees were the group that were most connected to the teachings of the rabbis among the Jews. And they had committed to memory all the teachings of rabbis of centuries past and very carefully, word for word, had memorized their teachings. And what the rabbis were doing was taking God's word, taking the scriptures, and helping people understand what it meant to obey God's commandments, what it meant to uh, live in the light of what God says in his word. So rabbis were basically interpreters of the word of God. And the Pharisees, that was their area of influence. The, the sphere in which they moved was the synagogue. This place where Jews would gather daily and they would read the Bible, they would read the Torah, and they would uh, review the teachings of the rabbis. That, kind, that was their sphere of influence. And the Pharisees in the first century were considered the experts in everything about what the, the Word of God has to say and how you go about understanding it and keeping it. The Sadducees were a different kind of animal. The Sadducees were mainly in Jerusalem, pretty much, and uh, they were connected not to the synagogue, but to the temple. And the temple is where all the Jews were required by the law of Moses to come to present their offerings. You couldn't present offerings in synagogues, so if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you had to travel to Jerusalem to present your offerings, because there was only one place you could present offerings, and that was the temple. In Jerusalem, So you can imagine that the Sadducees uh, controlling all of that, uh, that meant to them a lot of wealth and a lot of power because every Jew that wanted to bring offerings to God had to come to the temple and they ran the temple. So they were extremely wealthy. Some Sadducees, their living quarters in Jerusalem were comparable to the living quarters of senators in Rome. That's how wealthy these people were. So they're moving in the, in the high society circles. Uh, they're really politically connected, and they're powerful because they are extremely wealthy. Now, in terms of their beliefs, the Pharisees and Sadducees were very different. The Pharisees believed that there were demons and angels, spiritual forces for both good and evil at work in the world. And they also believed that one day there would be a final judgment where everybody would render an account to God of everything they've done with their lives. And they believed that there would be, uh, at that judgment, eternal rewards and eternal punishment. They believed in the re resurrection of the righteous and that they would share eternity with God. The Sadducees believed none of that. 
They did not believe that there was such a thing as angels or demons. They, in fact, they did not even accept where the Pharisees accepted all of the books of the Old Testament and they also believed that the rabbinic tradition they had committed to memory was just as important as the written word of God. The Sadducees said, forget all the rabbis' teachings and forget all the other books in the Old Testament. We're only going to accept the five books of Moses. Ignore all the rest. We don't believe they are word of God. Only the books of Moses. They did not believe in uh, angels or demons. They didn't think there was anything like that in the world. They did not believe that there would be any kind of a final judgment. In fact, they believed that when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. That's the end of everything. And um, so they didn't believe in resurrection or anything like that. You can imagine the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't have a whole lot in common. And yet, uh, what we're looking at here is in the final week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, and he arrives in Jerusalem, and what, ha- what he encounters in Jerusalem is that all the religious leader uh, figures in all, every sphere of religious influence and leadership in, in Jewish life, they kind of come together as one, even though normally they do not see eye to eye, they do not share common goals, but when it comes to Jesus, here's the thing they're all worried about. Jesus is extremely popular. People love him. And Jesus is not a part of any of their groups. Jesus is not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a Herodian. He's not a Zealot. Uh, He's none of these groups. In fact, he's critical of all of them. He points out where each one of these groups has failed to uh, live as God is calling us to live. So they feel threatened by Jesus because he's this unknown quantity that the masses adore and uh, he, they don't control him. So when he arrives in Jerusalem this final week, they come together and uh, put aside their differences and say, what can we do to get Jesus to trip up publicly? And they spend all week trying to challenge him publicly in front of everybody in the hopes that he'll say something they can use to get him in trouble. They uh, begin by asking him about his authority. Who gives you authority to do all this stuff and to call us out and say that we're teaching the people wrong and we're doing everything wrong? And uh, uh, Jesus responds, well, I'll answer if you answer my question. Uh, Was John's baptism from God? Or was it just some human thing? Was it had nothing to do with God? And here's the thing. Everybody loved John. He'd already died. John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. But everybody loved John. They saw him as a genuine prophet of God. The people loved John. And uh, the people that are asking this question know that John said, Jesus is the guy I came here to prepare you to receive. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease, but Jesus must increase. All the things that John had said about Jesus, his whole ministry was focused on bringing people to Jesus. So Jesus says, okay, you answer my question. Was was God behind what John was doing or not? And they're like, We can't say he was because then we can't keep attacking you because John said, you're the guy we need to be following. So we can't say God sent him. But if we say he didn't, everybody's going to get upset with us because everybody agrees he's a prophet, that God did send him. So they, oh, I'm I'm not sure. So Jesus said, okay, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. They tried to catch him politically. 
Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar in Rome or not? And they knew the public sentiment. They, they detested the way Rome had come in and taken over and basically conquered and subjugated them, put them under the family of Herod, who weren't even Jews, and uh, taxed them mercilessly. And they were sick and tired of sending off all this money to this uh, oppressive external empire that had come in to take over. So they're hoping Jesus will say... Uh, so that people don't get upset with them. They're hoping Jesus will say, well, no, you shouldn't be paying taxes to Rome. That's a pagan government. They worship false gods. They're, God's not behind that, so you shouldn't give them any money. Because if Jesus says that, then they can immediately call up the Roman authorities and say, hey, this guy is telling people not to pay taxes. He's a revolutionary. You guys need to get him out of here. And they thought, ah, oh, we've got him because then if he says, no, you have to pay taxes, then the people are going to hate him because they hate Rome. They hate paying these taxes. Jesus says, I'm so sick of you guys. Just bring me a coin. So they bring him a coin and he holds it up and says, okay, who's the guy on this coin? They say, it's Caesar. So he says, okay, give Caesar his stuff. Give God his stuff. Then the Sadducees thought they had him. You know, I told you they don't believe in resurrection. They said, you know, the law of Moses says if a woman dies and her husband had not had any children, rather than throw her out on the streets, she needs to be received by the closest relative and taken into that family and she becomes a wife of that person and any children born to her from that second marriage would count as children of the one who died without children and their name will, will not be forgotten. That was the way they dealt in the law of Moses with, with widows not being destitute. And they said, well, what happens if a woman marries, they have no kids, her husband dies, she marries his brother, they have no kids, he dies. We do this, and she ends up being married to seven different brothers. And then they all die. So you're saying there's a resurrection. How are they going to sort that out when the resurrection happens? Who gets to keep her as a wife? And Jesus said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. In the resurrection, things are different. You have no idea how different. Marriage is not a part of the equation in the resurrection. And everything they tried to do to trap Jesus, they failed. And then they come to this last attempt. And this is the one question that is really open-ended. It doesn't really feel like a trap. In fact, in Mark's account of this same event... He tells us more details, and it turns out, as Mark fleshes out for us, that the guy who actually asked the question genuinely wants to know what Jesus is going to tell him. And they end the conversation with Jesus talking to this guy and saying, you know what, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because he, he genuinely wanted to hear Jesus' answer to the question. But uh, Matthew in his version leaves those details out because he's just talking about how the Pharisees as a group are hoping to trip Jesus up so no doubt they kind of push this Pharisee up with his question not because they think it's a trap but they're thinking it's such an open-ended broad question maybe Jesus will say something we can use against him and it is a broad question right which is the great commandment in the law the Jews had studied the law of God in all the books 
and they had very carefully tabulated every single commandment God gives, and they had said there are 613 commandments in the, in the Word of God. And the rabbis spent all their time trying to interpret what it meant to obey each one of those 613 commandments. And a big question in rabbinic circles was, what's the most important of these? And not just that, but this is the way rabbis taught. Uh, They wanted to know which is the most important and, and arranged the commandments of God in order of importance so that you made sure you, if, if you didn't quite hit it all, at least you hit the most important stuff and you didn't, uh, distort things so that you observe this but ignored something more important. So that was kind of their approach and there had been much thought about this. What is the greatest, the most important commandment in the law? And actually the, the answer Jesus gives is the answer the rabbis would have given. Uh, that is, uh, they would have agreed on that. So there's the open-ended question, what is the great commandment? The idea being, if we were to arrange them all, which one would you say stands out? This is the great commandment, the most important of them all. And verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Jesus quotes from the Shema, this daily thing that every Jew was supposed to repeat in prayer to God as a reminder to themselves. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Actually, the quote from Deuteronomy 6 uh, doesn't say with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It says with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, the way the Hebrews thought of the human person is uh, the, the human being has at his core uh, this will, this basic central drive from which a person lives their life. That is what they identified as the heart. Uh, but the person also has this capacity to interact meaningfully with other people and to relate to God and to relate to one another in ways that animals cannot relate to one another. A person has a soul and a person has a body with which they move about in the world and do things and interact with the world around them and accomplish things. Uh, so for them it was heart, soul, and strength. That made up the whole person. What happens? Well, in the first century, there have been several centuries now that because of Alexander the Great's conquests, Greek philosophy has, has come to all these other nations. And now people are not just thinking about the heart, the soul, the, the body, but they're also thinking about the mind. The Greeks were really interested in intellect and your ability, your capacity to reason and think through things and analyze things. And it can be an internal thing. It's not necessarily a relational thing. So uh, to them, the human being also has, in addition to the other things I've talked about, has a mind, uh, a reasoning capacity. Uh, in Mark's version of this, he, he quotes the three that are in Deuteronomy in the Hebrew, and then he just adds mind. He adds a fourth. Uh, Matthew, in his version, has shortened it and substituted mind instead of strength. Just 
the whole point of what the, the gospel writers are trying to do is make sure that their readers, because they're writing in Greek, not Hebrew, that their readers will understand the commandment is to love God with everything you've got. However the culture you're in might define what are the components that make up a human being. Each of those components, all of it needs to be devoted to loving God. And Jesus makes a very clear, he doesn't beat around the bush, he doesn't manipulate his response or try to be sneaky about it. He just flat out answers it. What is the great commandment? It is love God with everything you've got. And then he even says, this is not just the great, this is the first commandment. If you're going to arrange the 613 commandments of the word of God in order of importance, this one is number one. Nothing in all the Bible is more important than loving God with everything you've got. Some of the unhelpful ways to describe what the Bible is about. Some people call it God's little help book or God's little answer book. Like the Bible is the ultimate self-help book. You want to get your act together, you want to deal with your emotional problems and your baggage, read the Bible, it'll tell you how to do everything. The Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is an invitation to a relationship with God. And it's about that relationship. It's not about just giving you instructions or pointers or guidelines. It's about drawing you into this relationship with God where you love God as He loves you. The reason you come to church should be that you want to love God with everything you've got and you want to learn to love Him the way He has first loved you. The reason you do anything you do outside of this church should be that this is the way in which I'm going to live my life to pursue a genuine love of my God with everything I've got. The career you do, the, the studies you devote yourself to, the, everything that you do in your life should be about loving God. And loving God as, as freely as God has loved us. The Bible tells us that God has held nothing back from us. God withholds no good thing from us. And you know where every good thing is found? In God. Which means God is all in. The first commandment is, I want you to respond to my love with the same level of surrender and integrity that I have shown to you. And by integrity, I mean every bit of you. We don't separate out ourselves and give God this little piece of my love. We do it as an integral unit. Everything that I as a human being bring to the table, that is how I'm going to love God. That is the first and great commandment. I didn't want to stop there because uh, there are three passages in the New Testament where Jesus has asked this question and every time he responds 
And he doesn't just say this is the first commandment. He always adds the second commandment, which means to me that we should not separate them. He could have just said, there, that's the great commandment. Answered your question, let's move on. But he always threw in the second commandment. So I think they have to be viewed as a unit. Verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A couple of things I would say about that. This is also from the Old Testament. It's a commandment found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And uh, God uh, commands the people of Israel to love their neighbor as, as themselves. Now, here's the interesting thing, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. That word neighbor is not a noun. It's either an adjective or an adverb because the word means near, the near. And we in English would have to supply a noun. The near what? The near one? The near person? The, the, the one who is close? Now, it seems from Jesus' words with his opponents that the way people, or the way at least some people interpreted this was neighbor means my fellow Jew. Neighbor means the person that lives next to me, lives near me, but not just that. The person that shares my identity as a Jew, the person who loves God, who keeps the commandments of God, and who is pursuing God in this covenant of Moses, the covenant of the law. This is my neighbor, and if you're not one of those, you're not my neighbor. How did Jesus define the one near you? You know, when he was talking about love, and it's, it's his interpretation of this very verse. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, and this is how you've, in practice, done it, and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Your neighbor is also your, your enemy is also your neighbor. Because the only requirement is that somebody be near enough that you can love them. So if we add to that the commandment Jesus gave his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, who is my neighbor? Everybody. I don't get to look at anyone and say, no, I don't have time for you. I'm not interested in you. You're not like me. You don't speak my language. You're not my culture. You're not my race. You don't agree with my political views. I don't have to love you. You're the enemy. The way Jesus interpreted it. You love whoever's near enough to be loved. And by the way, go to the ends of the earth. My neighborhood is the world. My neighbor is every single person on the face of the earth. For 12 years since I've been here, I know, and, and I'm sure before, but we've been very intentionally pursuing loving anybody God puts in our path. And look at the result today. There are people in our life we would never have known if we had limited ourselves to just reaching out to people who understand us and who we understand to people who look like us and speak like us. God keeps stretching the envelope. Because he is commanding us, not just to love him, but to love each other. And that means everybody.
Then verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know the way that's worded in the Greek? It's actually in the passive voice. From these two commandments hang, or from these two commandments are hung, all the law and the prophets. What does that mean? Well, it means that when God sat down to put together his word and he took 1,500 years to get it done and he used many men over many centuries and even in different nations to sit down and write these books and God interacted with each of these individuals and compelled them and inspired them and laid it on their hearts to write down these books and God made sure that these were collected and put together over a process of a thousand five hundred years and as God was composing his word he started by uh, driving a nail into the wall and from that nail in the wall, he began to hang his word. All of it. And the law and the prophets was a way in Jesus' day to say the whole Bible. God hung every bit of it from that one nail. And what is that one nail? Love God, love each other. I have, since I was a teenager, been preaching and teaching the Word of God. God called me into this early in life. And uh, I have never felt that I had anything to tell anybody. I'm not that smart. I don't have great ideas. I have nothing to share with you, honestly. My only interest has been, what does God have to say to me and to all of us? And I have... I have uh, devoted a lot of effort and time to reading the Word of God and trying to understand, God, what are you saying? And once I understand it, how do I share that with other people? Because God has tremendously important things to say to all of us. To me first. So as I sit to study the Word and prepare to share from it, I have always been very concerned. I do not want to teach somebody something God is not saying. And I understand it's very easy to do. It's easy to take the words of God and twist them around backwards and say the opposite of what God is trying to say. You can do that with anybody's words. I don't want to do that. So how do I, how do I keep it uh, on the right path? How do I make sure that I'm understanding what God is trying to say? Well, here we have the Rosetta Stone of biblical interpretation. The whole thing hangs from two things. Love God and love the one near you. Now Jesus has defined the one near you for us. That means everybody. That means that Anytime I'm reading any piece of the Bible, that has something to do with helping me learn how to love God or learn how to love those around me. And if I don't see that, I have not interpreted it correctly. Because if it was not about that, it would not be in the law. Because everything in God's Word has been hung from these two things. Every time I prepare to preach, I ask myself, what does this have to do with loving God and or 
loving each other. You probably noticed if you've been in this church for any amount of time that I come across this idea of loving God and loving each other a lot. There's no getting around it. And there are so many ways to miss the whole point of it, to think that the reason church is here is to uh, teach you how to straighten up and stop doing stupid stuff. That's one of the benefits, yes. But that's not the purpose of it all. The purpose of it isn't just to point out what you're doing wrong. The purpose isn't just to give you guidelines and instructions. This is how you should live your life. The purpose of the Bible is that you enter into a relationship with God that is all-consuming. That this relationship becomes the burning flame at the center of your life. But it doesn't stop there. It, it, it means then that from that relationship with God, from there we reach out and develop every other relationship we have. And we allow God's love to permeate and dictate how we go about relating to one another. You know what the kingdom of God is all about? Relationships. That's all. It's about you being in a genuine love relationship with God and allowing God to make your relationship with everybody around you to be the same kind of relationship. Sin has broken us. Sin has made it so hard for us to relate to God. We don't know how to love. We don't know how to love God. And because of that, we have no idea how to love each other. We're so self-centered and broken and manipulative. And we even use, we have the audacity to use love as an excuse to bend others to our will rather than genuinely serve them. How do we fix that? We love God with all we've got. And in Him, we discover how to love each other the same way. Indiscriminately. No tallies, no record of wrongs, no demands. But as freely and openly as God has loved us, we love each other. That's not just the reason the Bible was written. That's the reason your heart is beating. That's the reason you exist at all. You did not put yourself on this earth. God put you here. And you know the reason He put you here is so that you could discover how to love Him and love those around you. That is the purpose of your life. And you can waste your life pursuing other things. There are many things uh, that would fall under the uh, heading of the pride of life. There are things you might want to build yourself on. Accomplishments, careers, possessions. And you might devote yourself completely to pursuing all these things you think are going to make you a great person. But guess what? That is a lie. 
One day all of that will disappear. That phrase, the pride of life, we find it in 1 John chapter 2. And what John has to tell us about the pride of life is that all of this is going away. That glorious mansion you want to build, that great shiny new car you want to buy, that humongous plasma TV you want to get, uh, or LCD or whatever, OLED, whatever. That is going to one day no longer be here. You know what is going to be? God. You know what else is going to be? Those who love God. You know what else is going to be? Those who love each other because they love God. You want to invest yourself in something? Invest yourself in these relationships. And don't let anything rob you of this. The wonder of the Bible is that in this collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years, God traced one single story. It's the story of redemption, of how God chose to intervene in a world that was under the power of sin and death and rescue it eternally. That's the story. But what's the intent of the story? Why tell it at all? What does God want to see happen in us when we read it? Jesus tells us plainly what God wants to see happen in us when we hear this story is that we learn to love him the way he loves us without reservation with full integrity and so great is his love so selfless and expansive and glorious that he wants to fill our hearts with the capacity to love the entire human race just the way we are learning to love God The Bible, if we boil it down to its essence, is the ultimate guide to relationships. God wants a love relationship with you. Not just somebody. You. And He wants that relationship to become the core from which every other relationship in your life radiates outward. The result is a life lived with beautiful, deep, meaningful relationships. Have you trusted your life to Jesus yet? He's inviting you into this relationship. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. This is our time to respond to the Word of God. I find that the Word of God is never intended to just be informative. I don't want to just give you some information to file away and go home. The Word of God is a relational invitation from God, and we have to respond. And that's why every service we have this time of response. I'm going to ask in a moment a couple of uh, people to come up here on either side of the stage. These are just folks like you and me. There's nothing magical about them. Their only purpose in standing here is that you can come and say, this is what God has put on my heart right now, and I want to say yes to whatever he's saying to me. And they're just going to listen to you, and they're going to pray for you and encourage you because God wants us to do this together. So let me ask you to stand. Let me ask the people who are going to help us with the invitation to come forward. 
This is your time to respond to God's word. Come while we sing.